something like three or four percent of the world's uh, ecosystem or marshes, right? But it sequesters something like 30 percent of the world's carbon. The net carbon sequestration of a acre of uh, coastal Louisiana marshes is 80x one acre of terrestrial forest. Coastal ecosystems, particularly you know marshes, have an outsized impact on drawing down carbon. There are tremendous risks that our communities are facing. There's, the climate crisis is today, it's yesterday, and it's tomorrow. The idea that Louisiana stands alone as a risky place to start a civilization, but so is everywhere else. You know, oh, let's run for the hills, right? But I was just in the hills a couple weeks ago and there's a heat wave in the hills too. It looks a little bit different in different places, but everybody has risk. And what Louisiana has done with this risk, we're not just going to focus on the particular challenge at hand. We're going to try and fix the process. We're going to try and start as far back as we can, put science at the forefront of decision making. We're going to try and bring the stakeholders and the communities into the conversation so that when we are talking about coastal planning, we're not just talking about birds and fish but we're talking about communities and languages and way of lives and indigenous ideals and indigenous knowledge. The Gulf Coast and the researchers and the thinkers in this area have been leading on this for many, many, many decades. It's not, can we create a blue economy? It's not, can we create this, this opportunity? It's here, it's happening now. Researchers at LSU and Tulane and UNO and Nichols are doing some of the most innovative work across the world. Why is Louisiana poised to do it? Because we have the workforce and we have the minds that have been out in the Gulf building platforms, servicing platforms for decades and decades and decades. 2023 master plan just came out. It is a 50 year, $50 billion plan. It is Louisiana's uh, moonshot. This is a coastal and blue and resilient economy, Silicon Valley. Welcome to the Blue Economy Primer, a New Orleans based podcast where you learn from the experts, the practical tools and solution sets that will empower your community to adapt and thrive in a new blue era of rising seas and economic discontinuity. On today's episode, we are speaking with a visionary leader on the front lines of developing the complex mix of policy and engineering solutions that is required to realize long-term community resilience along the Louisiana Gulf Coast. As a team leader and environmental law expert, he has become a key facilitator reconciling complex state and federal regulatory frameworks with the critical need for cutting-edge marine infrastructure planning and engineering solutions that are integral to preparing our working coast for the ongoing and inevitable impacts of coastal land loss and associated marine habitat disruption. Bo, thank you so much for joining us on the Blue Economy Primer. Would you like to introduce yourself to our audience, please? Yeah, absolutely, uh, Greg. Thanks for having me on. So um, I am uh, currently the acting president and CEO of the Water Institute of the Gulf. Um, I am uh, born and raised in, in Ruston, Louisiana, north of here, but have called um, New Orleans home uh, for about a decade and, and Baton Rouge home for about uh, seven or eight years before that. So um, as you said, I come to this uh, conversation from an environmental coastal law background, um, I used to head up the environmental section at the Attorney General's office um, in, in Baton Rouge for the last two Attorney Generals, where we handled everything from oil spills to um, wildlife and fisheries cases to coastal land loss issues. Um, and now I have the privilege of uh, being at the Water Institute and, and working on some exciting work there. 
Can you tell us about the Water Institute's mission, agenda, and theory of change, particularly for our listeners from other parts of the world? Yeah, absolutely, Greg. So the Water Institute is an independent nonprofit applied research institution um, that's focused on advancing science and developing integrated methods uh, to solve complex environmental challenges uh, and societal challenges. So what does that mean, right? So the Water Institute, what we think is that we try and help communities thoughtfully prepare for an uncertain future, right? And that, um, it, whether that's Louisiana, whether that's the city of New Orleans, or whether it's uh, other stakeholders like the federal government or uh, like a company or a nonprofit, what we try and do is bring science uh, and put it at the forefront of decision-making um, to help decision-makers balance the many stakeholders, uh, the many challenges that they have. We're a group of about 85 people, um, scientists, engineers, uh, urban planners, lawyers, um, grants and contracts uh, specialists, uh, other administrative professionals. Um, we are centered mostly in uh, Baton Rouge and New Orleans. We have an office that sticks out over the levee in Baton Rouge, and then we have an o- office uh, at the beach at uh, UNO. Um, and then we have folks um, remotely scattered around 17 or 18 different states. And the work that we focus on is primarily focused in uh, and around Louisiana. But we also uh, do a lot of work um, along the Gulf Coast, really from the, the uh, southern Atlantic uh, across to Texas. So Virginia, uh, South Carolina, Florida, Georgia, uh, and along down uh, to Texas. So um, that's what we focus on. You know, uh, from our standpoint, you know, that that's who we are. That's what we do. Really, our vision, um, it, it's threefold. It's resilient and equitable communities, it's sustainable environments, and thriving economies. And, um, you know, I, I think that uh, that vision statement, which is which is uh, indicative of a, of a good vision statement, is not just our own, right? It's shared by our partners. It's likely shared by Deep Blue. It's shared by folks like the Greater New, uh, New Orleans Incorporated, right? These are things that we are all collectively working on. It. What, what we do, right, is science and engineering, Um, How we do it is using these interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary methods of bringing people across silos to try and um, and try and navigate um, tough questions. But why we do it, it's that vision It's resilient and and equitable communities, it's thriving economies and it's healthy ecosystems. You are a Louisiana native, clearly committed to our long term well-being. Can you tell us a bit about your background and what led you to your current work? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I grew up uh, in a small town in North Louisiana, Ruston, which was very far away from the coast. Um, at, at least it, it felt like it. Um, but grew up with a, a healthy understanding of, you know, conservation and the outdoors. There's not a whole lot to do um, uh, up there other than hunting and fishing and, and farming, which was a lot of fun, right? We spent a lot of time outside. And so um, I spent a lot of time in the Gulf Coast uh, coming down here to go fishing for redfish and uh, duck hunting and, and, you know, kind of engage with coastal Louisiana the way that many people do through Sportsman's Paradise. Um, it actually wasn't like many of us, right? Uh, many of us who have, have taken that journey um, elsewhere. It wasn't until I was uh, doing a, 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 a tour out of Louisiana for, for undergrad when Hurricane Katrina and 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 all of the things that 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 followed it um, really kind of shook me back uh, back to Louisiana. I was planning to come back anyway, uh, probably, but seeing what was going on here, focusing on environmental issues, and recognizing that there was no better place in the country um, to not just respond and 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 try and be a force of good, but to actually find opportunity to to be international leaders. Louisiana was doing it, um, and Louisiana is still doing it, and so there was no place to be I, I, uh, other than, than to come home. And so I moved back uh, for law school and, and went to LSU, 
and trained, you know, to be an environmental lawyer. That was my focus. And lo and behold, the oil spill happens. And um, out of a, you know, terrible tragedy, um, as an environmental lawyer, where else would you go (laughs) than right there? So I jumped in uh, to the oil spill team at the attorney general's office and worked on um, the, the, the closeout of the oil spill cases and a lot of the ancillary cases that were around it. And just, you know, re-solidified uh, my love for this place and the culture um, and, uh, and, and home. I mean, this place is home. I have families here. I have, uh, you know, two little kids that are learning the language that, uh, you know, my grandparents didn't pass down to us. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful place to be. The Water Institute has a broad and complex agenda working at the intersection of different public and private sector organizations, which is pretty unique. Can you tell us about the Institute's relation to Deltares in the Netherlands and how the Water Institute has become such a critical regional player in such a short time? You know, Greg, the, the Dutch uh, connection and, and Deltares is, is really integral to the founding uh, of the Water Institute of the Gulf and is still present today. And so to kind of answer that, I'll take a step back. Back in 2005, uh, 2006, in the aftermath of Hurricanes Katrina, Rita, um, the leaders in the state of Louisiana, particularly uh, Senators Mary Landrieu, and at the time, the Coastal Director uh, Garrett Graves, who's now a congressman, as well as the Baton Rouge Area Foundation and folks from the uh, New Orleans um, philanthropic and, and business community, uh, started to uh, collaborate and communicate with uh, folks in the Dutch embassy uh, and, and started taking some trips back and forth to the Netherlands. They took several trips back and forth. Uh, and one of the things that they kept seeing is that um, not only had the Dutch become experts um, in, in uh, engineering and, and, and water management, uh, and we're now selling that across the world, um, but what, what they notice is the way that that, um, that the community there uh, was operating somewhat as an ecosystem, right? So you had the government working together, together with the universities, working together with the private sector. And in the middle, they recognize there's this group called Deltaris, who you mentioned, who was a nonprofit science and engineering research institute that was not part of the government, but it worked closely with the government. That was not part of the universities, but worked closely with the universities, was not part of the private sector, but worked very closely with them. And the leaders in Baton Rouge and New Orleans said, you know what, we need that here. Um, And that's where the idea for the Water Institute was born. Fast forward a few years to the BP oil spill, the funding became available to to realize this vision. um, And from a grant uh, through the Baton Rouge Area Foundation and the state of Louisiana through the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority, the Water Institute was founded, um, and it was founded, you know, to to play a similar role uh, to uh, Deltares um, in in Louisiana. It's not to say, um, and it's still not the case today, that there are not visionary scientists and visionary leaders um, throughout the Louisiana uh, and Gulf Coast um, uh, kind of economy and 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 you know. Uh, uh, thought leaders around. There's there's fantastic folks here, but the idea was to create this one entity uh, that could try and help be some connective tissue and pull things together. And so that's um, you know it, it, it's it's set up in our DNA to have this uh, um, you know connection to uh, the international experts and the international leaders. How that's carried forward to today is is we still work very closely with the Netherlands. We were there. Um, just under a year ago, we'll probably go back soon, bring um, thought leaders and, and uh, folks working in and out of government um, to, to go visit and learn from the Dutch. Um, but, you know, we, we really try and carry some of those innovative ideals um, uh, forward here in Louisiana. One of the interesting things, Greg, that I'll add in is that um, I learned recently that 
Um, there's a interesting backstory to, you know, post Katrina, everybody was talking about, we got to do like the Dutch, we have to do like the Dutch and the Dutch have done a fantastic job. But one of the really interesting things that I learned recently is that in 1953, when, you know, half of the, the Netherlands flooded, they had their Katrina moment, right? And that's what really solidified their opportunities, uh, and solidified their shared, uh, um, uh, uh, vision to never let that happen again. You know who they called? The Waterways Experimentation Station in Vicksburg, uh, Mississippi, which has now become uh, the Army Corps' Erdic Research Facility, which is a partner of ours and a partner of many folks uh, in the Gulf, uh, the Gulf Coast and across the country. And so it's really interesting to see this come full circle. And I think that was lost um, in the early years of, you know, kind of post-Katrina um, and obviously the, the um, you know, back and forth between the community and the Corps. But one of the things that um, is interesting for us to acknowledge is this is not a new, yes, this is tip of the spear in certain uh, areas, but the Gulf Coast and the researchers and the thinkers in this area have been leading on this for many, many, many decades. Um, and, and so um, the, it's not to say there's not new and exciting things happening, but when we look to the international leaders, we look to Deltares, we look to the Dutch, we've been doing this here for a long time and our, our shared uh, our shared risk and our, our uh, collaboration and communication can only make all of us better. Yeah, that's a great story. And I think another example of how we don't always acknowledge or celebrate the leadership and innovation that is coming out of the Gulf South in these sectors or on these topics. You remind us that the BP oil spill was such an important benchmark, tragically in terms of the environmental damage and sociocultural dislocation that it triggered, but also in terms of the important institutional evolution and leadership development that it likely accelerated for organizations like the Water Institute and CPRA. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you look back through the history of environmental law and environmental policy, at the front end of big change, you'll always see some big charismatic event. It's either the threat of a loss of some charismatic megafauna or megaflora, right? You have DDT and the eagles and the pelicans. Um, you've got Love Canal. Um, you, you've got the Cuyahoga River catching on fire, right? You've got acid rain. Um, you've got these big events that, that really shake people to their core. And then you have systemic change. You know, the, the thing that was fantastic about the response to the BP oil spill and a terrible tragedy is that this clearly wasn't the first time this had been done. And so you have the Exxon Valdez, uh, which happened, you know, uh, several decades before. And uh, after the the, um, uh, the the continuous and, and slog and slog and slog of litigation and back and forth over the, B, uh, over the Exxon Valdez oil spill, you had the creation of the Oil Pollution Act of 1990, which completely changed the paradigm of how we did this, of how we managed large-scale oil spills. And not everything was perfect by a long shot, right? Not everything was perfect. But um, the tools that the federal government and the states, uh, the five Gulf states and um, the stakeholders in and around the Gulf Coast had to navigate this situation by, you know, having a, you know, responsible party designated up front at the beginning um, to, you know, enter into this multi-district litigation to try and bring everything under one hood was a way different experience than, uh, you know, navigating the Exxon Valdez. And so you have uh, the Restore Act, um, and, and the Restore Council come into play to start trying to, you know, help uh, navigate the settlement funds. You had the five Gulf states, um, uh, on the most part, working together, um, obviously, you know, with very, very different uh, interests and very different impacts. Um, and, and, you know, there's, I'm sure there's a lot of things that could have been done better. Um, there always are, right, both on the response side, on, you know, the litigation side. Um, but 
there was a lot of lessons that have been learned before, and I think that it, it's a it's a situation where there was a terrible tragedy, um, not only the loss of eleven lives, um, uh, primarily that, and then um, you know massive ecosystem um, and economic damage to the Gulf Coast. But from that moment, you had, um, you know, it was a, it was a, one of the many wake-up calls that we in, on the Gulf, Gulf Coast have had. And rather than these, these revenues that came out of the spill going, you know, just, just flitting about into the air, the state of Louisiana um, was able to do something because uh, – to do something with these revenues because it had planned ahead. And, and that's one of the most critical pieces um, to, to understand here is that the state of Louisiana for decades had been recognizing its coastal risks, starting back with the Coast 2050 plan, um, here today, gone tomorrow, the CRCL report, um, and moving into the 2007 coastal master plan, right? And, and this master plan was very similar to what we have in New Orleans with the urban water plan. It was a vision document that recognized that we have these shared problems, that there are ways to push back against them. It wasn't, you know, nothing and bolts, what we're going to do, what project we're going to prioritize. But we had this plan, we had this vision. And because we had this plan, and because we had, uh, just after that plan, consolidated government in uh, Louisiana, where we pulled from, I think, 10 or 12 different state agencies, and created the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority, and created the Governor's Office of Coastal Activities, um, and, and created these structural changes, when that money came in, right, from this, this tragedy, the state of Louisiana, unlike the other four Gulf states, if I if I can say so, um, was able to put that money directly to the highest priority areas, and and not just on a whim, and not just what you know was a particular political uh, priority at that time, but things that have been vetted by science and research and data and the communities. Um, and we were able to take that, we, collectively, the state of Louisiana uh, and the community was able to take those uh, oil spill revenues and put them into what we knew mattered. Now, again, it's not perfect, but Louisiana, because of its pre-planning, uh, was, in my opinion, um, well set up to handle handle that challenge. And if I understand correctly, there's some urgency because those monies are actually sunsetting in the coming years. Is that right? Yeah. So, you know, if you look at uh, the, the state of Louisiana's coastal program, uh, the coastal master plan being the, the um, you know, kind of the fountainhead of all of this, um, which is, is, is uh, updated every six years, the 2023 master plan just came out. Encourage everybody to go take a look at it. It's a fantastic document. Um, we had the privilege of of assisting the state of Louisiana on many facets, from modeling to uh, the planning processes um, on, on that that master plan. And and um, it, it is a fifty year, fifty billion dollar plan, right? So it's a it is it is a moonshot, right? It is Louisiana's uh, moonshot. And the majority of the funding that has been secured for that plan has come from, um, you know, the oil spill, either oil spill revenues through the Gulf of Mexico's uh, Energy Security Act um, or um, the BP oil spill. And, yeah, the, the, those funds are, uh, are, are set up to sunset in 2031, 2032. So we are all actively staring at, um, you know, somewhat of a coastal fiscal, a fiscal cliff. Um, that being said, right, there are not only additional sources of revenue, but as we look at a $50 billion, 50-year plan, we know that there's, there's somewhat of a, a time value of action, right? Doing things now, putting money in the ground now on the front end. Uh, we don't have every dollar identified. The state of Louisiana doesn't have any, every dollar identified for the next 50 years. But man, am I glad that we, we stuck that money into the ground as quickly as possible. 
And as always, I want to remind our listeners that on the episode webpage, we have links for all of the documents, programs, and organizations that Bo is referencing so that you can do a deep dive into this information. What does the blue economy and blue technology development mean to you? And how does the Institute reconcile its private and public sector roles and responsibilities? Yeah, you know, so the blue economy, um, you know, I think when I hear that phrase or, or, or when I see it, um, I am, uh, you know, kind of move towards, oh, this is something new. This is, this is, this, you know, kind of the, the next tech sec- sector. This is the, 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 the new frontier. Um, and, uh, but then I'm, you know, kind of reminded about what that really looks like here, right? What that really m- looks like in Louisiana, for instance, let's talk about, you know, wind energy, right? Um, and the amazing advances that are being made in wind energy around the country. I think the first lease sale is going out uh, in the next couple of days off Southwest Louisiana, well, yeah, this is a new economy. This is a new opportunity. It's a new frontier. But why is Louisiana poised to do it? Because we have the workforce and we have the minds that have been out in the Gulf building platforms, servicing platforms for decades and decades and decades. So, um, yes, this is a new this is a new effort. This is a new endeavor. But Louisiana has been navigating life on a delta of constant change and dynamism since its founding. Um, so this is this is new and it's old. You know, and, and when I think about um, why the Water Institute was set up and the opportunities that exist in Louisiana, um, you know, yes, my mind goes to the Dutch, right? But it also goes to this, you know, the idea of a canary in a coal mine, right? And this is an analogy that's thrown around all over the, time, all over the place. But, you know, what Louisiana has been navigating since, you know, the 1930s of coastal land loss and what we are navigating now and will be navigating with, with sea level rise um, they are existential threats. They are risk that that can threaten our way of life. We know all too well they can threaten our actual life. Um, and the opportunity that exists is to to find uh, to find economic and to find social and and equitable opportunities um, in the face of this this risk. And it's not just to make us better, right? It's not just to make Louisiana more resilient, to make uh, Louisiana thrive. But it's because then we we're doing this first, right? We are on the front end of the spear. Um, everybody around the world talks about sea level rise. In Louisiana, we talk about relative sea level rise because we're going down and the water's coming up, so it's faster. Right. So the opportunity here is not just, you know, planning for our own sake or not just doing science to protect ourselves, but it's doing science and planning and thought and thought leadership and, and you know, artistic leadership in this space so that we can though go and, and then be, um, you know, uh, on the forefront of other communities that are navigating these. Right. Our climate and coastal challenges have been well documented. Right. We have hurricanes. We hurricanes galore. Right. We have, you know, uh, blue sky flooding. Um, we have heat waves. We have all of these things. But just open the newspaper or, you know, listen into the radio. We're not alone. Ours happen to be, you know, uh, in a way, and unfortunately, more charismatic historically in that, you know, we have people getting pulled off houses and and people dying in these, you know, the, the, the press loves to, you know, find a, a good story there. Um, but 
Look in Vermont. Look in New Hampshire. Look at the United States Military Academy right now, or, or you know, two weeks ago. Look at the forest fires across Canada, right? I mean, the idea that Louisiana stands alone as a risky place to start a a, um, a you know a, a civilization, right? Um, it is a precarious place to build a, a civilization, but so is everywhere else, right? The what you know, climate change and 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 the the existential risks that we are facing across the globe have shown us is that. It looks a little bit different in different places, but everybody has risk. And what Louisiana has done with this risk, and we haven't done it perfectly, right? You know, of course, we haven't done it perfectly. But what we have done is said, we're not just going to focus on the particular, you know, uh, challenge at hand. We're going to try and fix the process. We're going to try and start as far back as we can, put science at the forefront of decision making. We're going to try and bring the stakeholders and the communities into the conversation so that when we are talking about coastal planning, we're not just talking about birds and fish, but we're talking about communities and languages and way of lives and indigenous thought, you know, in, in, in uh, indigenous ideals and indigenous knowledge. Um, these are part of the conversation. And yes, that will make us better. It'll make us more resilient. It'll make us thrive. But it's also going to give lessons for the rest of the country and the rest of the world. Now, and the Water Institute is is one of the many examples of where that is the case. We were set up with kind of a, a tripartite mission. The first was to focus the best science and engineering and thought on the state of Louisiana to help us solve our problems, right? If you look at what we did the first seven years, it was almost primarily for the state of Louisiana, right? Coastal master plan, work uh, with and for the state of Louisiana. We've broadened significantly, and it's not by chance. That is explicitly what we were set up to do, which is to say now, take this work that you've done in Louisiana and the lessons that you've learned and go export it elsewhere, Right. So we are now we've done the resilient strategy for the city of Houston, the resilient Houston strategy. We're now you know, actively working in the city of Jacksonville. We've been in Charleston. We've helped uh, the state of Virginia set up its uh, coastal master plan. We you know, worked in the Philippines and Argentina, um, you know, collaborating with folks in Singapore. Right. So we are now and, and that's not exporting, you know, Water Institute, you know, uh, work. This is exporting the collective understanding that we have have gathered in Louisiana. And we are bringing Louisiana partners with us. But then the third part, uh, part of our mission and, and our founding principles was, OK, now once we've gone there, once we've gone to Charleston and Jacksonville and Mobile and, you know, Houston, what are the lessons that we can learn there? What are the methodologies that we've come up there? And how can we bring those back? And that happens on a daily basis, um, not only in our work with the um, uh, CPRA, but in work with the city of New Orleans, um, our work around communities in Louisiana, where we are taking the tools and methods that we are, you know, starting in Louisiana, honing across the world, and then bringing back at Bear for communities here in, in Louisiana. Wow. Well, it's great to hear about this kind of bold leadership that the Institute is putting out in the world and the clearly well-deserved successes that are coming with that. So we were excited to hear the breaking news that you were just selected to be part of the prestigious Committee of 100 for Economic Development in Louisiana. Congratulations on that. Can you tell us about what that means for you and how you see the committee's regional role supporting the work you and the Water Institute have been doing? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, first off, the uh, thank you. You know, I think it, it's it's pretty clear the the you know placement on the committee of one hundred, the C one hundred group is is an organizational position. It is not it is not Bo Jones and Bo Jones's resume or, or um, uh, what what he brings to the table. I hope I can bring uh, some good ideas and and good conversations. But this is about the Water Institute's role um, in economic development in Louisiana. And C one hundred has a you know it's a it's a uh, laundry list of, of amazing visionary leaders across the state of Louisiana that are trying to pull their communities, their individual communities forward. 
And, um, you know, why is the Water Institute, why is a, you know, uh, what many people may think of as a, you know, high-minded scientific organization sitting up on the levee in Baton Rouge, um, why are we involved in economic development? Well, um, number one, we recognize in our vision, right, that it's not just um, resilient and equitable communities. That is a core piece of what we hope for, but it's also thriving economies. Why? Because who does the economy benefit? It benefits the people. It benefits the ecosystems. It benefits, um, you, you know, the opportunities that exist. It makes for more resilient and equitable communities. It allows us to have, uh, you know, uh, healthy ecosystems when we have an economic future, right? So, one of the things that we as the Water Institute hope to do is 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 to try and um, bring some of those ideals from the, the Dutch government. And I, and I can say uh, unequivocally, this has not always been a perfect um, execution, right? There, there's, there are challenges, but our goal is not just that the Water Institute go, goes and does all this work or the Water Institute is the one that you see on the front page of the paper, but that the Water Institute is one of the many people uh, in this web, in this ecosystem of thought leadership, of science and engineering, um, when, when, when I, um, you know, uh, what, what I hope for people when they look into the Gulf coast or go, uh, look into Louisiana and say, man, they are leading the charge. They are, um, really putting science first. They are asking the hard questions. They are bringing the community together to have some of the hard discussions and they are leading from the front. I don't want people to just talk about the water Institute. I want people to talk about the innovative work that political subdivisions are doing, the levy districts around the uh, around the state are doing. I want the people to talk about the um, innovative work that the Army Corps of Engineers is doing. The Army Corps of Engineers is about to embark on a five-year, $25 million study to think about the comprehensive management of the Lower Mississippi River from Cape Girardeau down to Plaquemines Parish, right? To rethink the way that we manage uh, manage and understand rivers, the state of Louisiana has just you know put out one of the uh, again one of the most comprehensive science based ecosystem restoration plans in the world. The city of New Orleans is 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 handling challenges or and leaning into challenges around you know urban uh, water and and urban resilience um, that are on the the forefront of of the international conversation. Researchers at LSU and Tulane and UNO and Nichols are doing some of the most innovative work across the world in carbon sequestration, in, um, you know, uh, social uh, uh, social sciences around, you know, planning and the human dimensions around, you know, uh, sediment transport and hydrology and uh, geomorphology. I mean, th- this place, um, it, it's not can we create a blue economy? It's not can we create this this opportunity? It's here. It's happening now. And so one of the, the hopes that I have for the Water Institute is that we can help coalesce um, and, and, and be uh, part of that connective tissue to pull everybody together so that when people externally and internally um, look at the state of Louisiana and look at the Gulf Coast, they're seeing that not only, you know, not only are there risks, yes, there are risks. There are risks everywhere. Um, but there is opportunity. And that opportunity, back to the C100 and economic development, it's not just you know, pie-in-the-sky research. It's not just academic thought, right? There are startups that are spinning out left and right. You know, we've had the uh, pleasure of working with uh, a, a young startup called Arcoast um, that has been, you know, bringing some of the most uh, impressive uh, remote sensing technology and, um, and 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 drone and LIDAR work to try and help people manage uh, shorelines, right? 
this isn't just about us or one university or one company or one nonprofit organization. Um, it's about the whole ecosystem. And so, you know, from an economic development standpoint, you go find an architectural and engineering firm, a Wagner and Ball, a Moffin and Nickel, a Royal Engineering, an AECOM and Arcata, somebody who works in the Gulf Coast and works on these issues in Louisiana, they're going to be better able to help communities around the world plan for, engineer, and build and design uh, resilient systems, particularly around nature-based solutions. So this is this is a, a um, you know coastal and blue and resilient economy uh, Silicon Valley, and and it's not just about thought and research and, and governments. There are awesome startups and a lot of energy that are popping out of that and some really old companies, you know, some really old companies that have been around, um, for, you know, hundreds of years that, that may have shifted, um, their mentality. I mean, it, 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 you look down in Port Fouchon right now and, 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 and see some of the old, uh, workover boats that, um, they're pivoting their workforce and they're pivoting their technology to go to Block Island, to go off Southwest Louisiana to build wind farms. Can you tell us a bit more about how the Institute is balancing the interdependency between economic development and environmental conservation issues, while also protecting our rich cultural heritage and ensuring the long-term vibrancy of our working coast? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we've learned in Louisiana, and when I say we, I mean, this is, this is decades and decades of, 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 of understanding, is that, um, you know, there's no one-size-fits-all, and we can't look at coastal Louisiana or the Gulf Coast or the communities that exist within it in the traditional, like, you know, um, uh, winner, loser, black, white um, NGO framework, right? That's, that's just not how it works, right? There is a, we have very strange bedfellows in, in Louisiana, right? Some of our longest oil and gas operators are some of our most innovative, um, you know, uh, funders and thinkers around, um, you know, climate and, and coastal research right now. Um, so the balance between the green and the gray, the balance between the economic and the ecosystem is something that not only in, in Louisiana have we, we, I think, done a pretty good job of advancing, um, but it, it's core to who we are, right? You know, let's look back to the, you know, Cajun French language, right? If, um, you know, many of, of, of my family members hadn't had uh, the oil and gas industry to go work into or, or, or other industrial pursuits or things that uh, or the ability to go and live and work off the land, maybe they would have to, you know, move north and go work in a factory in Detroit. Right. But we were able to stay here and live off this land, which, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, doubles down on the sportsman's paradise, but also, you know, looks into minerals and, and oil and gas opportunities and um, the industrial framework we ha- that we have now. And, and so there's some, there's some interesting, you know, benefits from that. But, you know, moving forward, um, you'll see whether it's Port Fouchon, and I'll, I'll pick on Port Fouchon for a second, right? So Port Fouchon, the Greater Lafourche Port Commission, is, you know, large uh, uh, oil field uh, servicing port um, it, it just, just west of Grand Isle on the Caminata Headlands. And um, in Port Fouchon, they have these large, large boat slips and, and, and you know, um, workboat facilities. And they knew that they had to dredge those facilities. Um, you know, historically, not, uh, not Port Fouchon, but historically, when you dredge something out, you go and you dump it off the continental shelf. It's the cheapest, easiest way to do it. Well, obviously, there's the beneficial use of dredge material program and, and um, uh, you know, various incentives that exist around to try and, you know, more beneficially use uh, the dredge material. We also know that sediment in coastal Louisiana is the lifeblood, right? And so the Greater Lafourche Port Commission came to us um, along with some of their tenants, Shell, Chevron, Danos, um, to, to try and help rethink the way that they 
use or could use this beneficial use uh, dredge material. And so we conducted some, some of the most robust and, and cutting-edge you know, modeling uh, to try and figure out what the best placement of this material was. What were their goals? What were the objectives of placing this material? Is it just to build a pretty wetland? Okay, that's one of them. But it's not just that. What, the, what we set out as the four criteria was where can we place this dredge material that has the greatest um, uh, benefit to protect the infrastructure, right? The highest community benefit, both in, in terms of protection and in terms of recreation. What has the greatest ecosystem benefit, right? What is going to build the most healthy ecosystem? And then also, what is going to have the highest carbon sequestration potential, right? So you can see not only in the state of Louisiana, but everything that we're doing um, across the Gulf Coast, where the conversation is starting to shift towards, you know, the stacked or multiple benefits around opportunities. And this is, um, is, is emanates from um, that dichotomy or, or, or perceived dichotomy around you know, economy and ecosystems are the blue and the green, um, or excuse me, the green and the gray. Um, and it's really no size one, no one size fits all. And so that's what you're seeing. And in, in, in the Army Corps of Engineers is leading the way uh, in, in thinking about the comprehensive benefits of, of you know, coastal planning and, and nature-based solutions. So this is something um, that I'm really excited. It's not a one size fits all. It's not black or white. We can protect our infrastructure and um, have a community benefit as well. Uh, when we're doing projects. The Institute is involved in various aspects of the most complex, large-scale engineering efforts for long-term protection of our coast. But you're also spearheading the research and development of sticky issues in emerging tech, like the development of blue carbon credit authorization, protocols, monitoring, and monetization. Can you give us an overview of how these activities fit into your long-term mission and theory of change? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the blue carbon work is, is, you know, Something that we and researchers across the state, both at um, you know Tulane and LSU in particular, have been looking into for decades. Right, is what is um, the 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 net carbon impact of um, you know coastal ecosystems? Right, we know um, just understanding you know the biologic process that you know um, oxygen goes out, carbon dioxide comes in. Well, does that have uh, a carbon benefit? Yes, right. Um, and you know this conversation came up in the in the early 2000s when there was some speculation around uh, the country going to a cap and trade market, and they said, "Hey, well, what's the carbon benefit of coastal Louisiana?" Um, and you know from that time to now, you have this huge market that has uh, stood up. You know, it's on the order of two billion dollars a year in the voluntary carbon market credits. And so, a voluntary carbon market, just for the listeners out there who who aren't familiar with it, um, is the idea that you know act activities conducted somewhere can offset um, uh, somebody's uh, more carbon intensive uh, activities in, a, in another place. And this is uh, done through, um, you know, conducting projects or, or preserving projects that are both additional um, and, and meet the standards of permanence. And when I say additional, that means that but for the carbon work, they would not, but for the carbon market, they would not have otherwise been constructed or protected uh, to that effect. And secondly, uh, the, the permanence is that they have to be uh, present for, for a considerable period of time, uh, generally 100 years, right? So the way that the carbon market um, uh, mostly works right now is, is through, you know, either planting new trees or preserving trees that are already planted that are, in, in theory, uh, going to be cut down. Um, there are these independent third-party uh, bodies like Vera and Gold Standard and American Carbon Registry 
um, that look at uh, the projects and verify what the carbon uh, sequestration benefit is. Um, so this is an area of, of, you know, not only research in you know, kind of fundamental research in, okay, what does spartina grass do in terms of the, you know, the uh, greenhouse gas flux? What do emergent marshes do? How do submerged aquatic vegetation impact uh, the carbon balance uh, throughout the coast? And so this is a really interesting area of research, but also recognizing back to the fiscal cliff conversation that you had, the state of Louisiana last year um, uh, did its first ever, and I think it's the only um, climate mitigation strategy in the Deep South. It's, it, 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 it's, I would argue it's one of the more comprehensive ones across the country. Um, and uh, I encourage your, your listeners to go uh, take a look at the, the climate action plan from, from 2022. And in that, one of the actions and, and, you know, proposed actions to try and reduce our overall emissions um, was to try and leverage the voluntary carbon markets, which exist internationally, um, to incentivize private investment into coastal, um, coastal Louisiana. Now, why? Again, back to that fiscal cliff conversation. At 2031, we're going to go from spending, um, you know, proposed uh, right now, I think this year we're spending around $1.6 billion of state and federal funds on, you know, coastal master plan projects. Um, and that number in 2031 is, is set to drop significantly. So whether it's through wind uh, leasing or, or other opportunities, um, carbon markets are something that has have come on the table for the state of Louisiana. And we were asked by the state of Louisiana and the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority uh, and the Governor's Office of, Climate, uh, of Coastal Activities to look into this and continue diving into the research. Um, not just because we want to know, but is there a way to leverage some of that financial opportunity? And a lot of this conversation gets boiled down into markets, right? And, and that's one of the, you know, if I dare say it, one of the sexier angles of it. It's like, oh, can we have a, a carbon coin that is traded so that I can come and, and, and purchase a coin and that's going to build an, an acre of wetlands? Maybe, right? I, I think that's, that's it, it definitely is happening, happening with mangrove habitats around the world. Um, you know, Pakistan just uh, put online the Delta Blue Carbon Project, which is a massive blue carbon project, but it's centered around red mangroves, which is a little bit different in our habitat. So maybe there's a market out there, right? But, but one of the important things to recognize is that even if there's not a fungible, you know, credit that exists at the end of, of this collective thought, and it's not just the Water Institute, it's the state, it's the universities, it's, it's you know, private sector uh, entities around, um, even if there's not a coin at the end of this, there are still a lot of reasons for us to better understand and quantify the carbon benefits of coastal Louisiana. Um, you know, just to, to, to uh, you know, make the point a little, a little bit uh, more clearly is that oftentimes when we're, you know, trying to advocate for federal or international fundings for coastal Louisiana, you know, we're showing, you know, pictures of, of the detrimental impacts of storms. And we're talking about, you know, luckily this is the, you know, this is the estuary that, that is so critical for the habitat for the red drum or for, um, you know, the speckled trout or, you know, 110 species of neotropic migrant birds use coastal Louisiana as a softball point. These are all, I mean, for me, these are very important points. But if you, you know, put them down into all the important points across the international economy and across the international philanthropic market, do they rise to that same level? But if you think of, and I, and I don't have the exact uh, uh, notes in front of me, but, you know, something like three or 4% of the world's uh, ecosystem are marshes, right? But it sequesters something like 30% of the world's carbon, right? So what we know is that Coastal ecosystems, particularly, you know, marshes, have an outsized impact on drawing down carbon. And so even if there's not a market at the end of it, 
understanding and quantifying what that impact is, is yet another uh, arrow in the quiver for people in the state of Louisiana to say, we matter. And this ecosystem matter. I mean, when most of this land was given away in the Swamplands Act, um, you know, it, 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 you know, uh, many, 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 many decades ago, um, marshland was was wasteland. Why would you, you know, you know, drain it, right? Drain it, and let's make a make a society. Well, that may make sense if our only value that we're quantifying are, are fur, is fur, and fur prices go down. That may make sense if you know our only metric is is malaria right um but if we're looking at the the comprehensive suite of benefits and value of coastal ecosystems across the world and the international community um sometimes more so or oftentimes more so than the the united states community is is paying very close attention to the carbon impacts, then, man, is that a story that I would want to tell on behalf of the state of Louisiana, um, the impacts of, of uh, the carbon cycle uh, and, and the impacts of, of the nature-based solutions and coastal ecosystems, whether it's cypress forests, grasslands, um, or, or marshes or submerged aquatic vegetation. So that's what we're looking at with a big uh, group. We just started the North, uh, Northern Gulf of Mexico Blue Carbon Working Group. I think you joined us at that meeting and brought in researchers from around the Gulf South, Florida, and, and, and South Carolina, uh, Texas, um, and, and many uh, in Louisiana to think about these issues, to try and think how we can figure out how we can advance the conversation. Sure, a market may be out there, but even if there's not a market, um, there is value in understanding the impacts. What are some of your favorite indicative global or regional benchmarks or statistics that crystallize the Gulf Coast climate crisis for you and the opportunities that it may bring? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a um, my mind kind of spins in uh, in in how to respond to that in in Louisiana, right? In in terms of uh, the the crisis, right? I mean, um, you can go through the economic, you know, quote the 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 numbers of the economic impact of shutting down the port of New Orleans for a day due to a hurricane. You can go to uh, look at the numbers of structures that are outside of, of the realm of protection that that uh, may either need to be raised or or communities uh, need to be moved, uh, like the Ile de Jean Charles. Um, you know, you can look at some of these things to really identify and define our risk. Um, but I think focusing on the opportunity, and this is back to, you know, the carbon piece of this, is um, if you look at a terrestrial forest, which is where, which is the underpinning of the majority of the voluntary carbon market is terrestrial forest. And you look at that um, and, and uh, you take one acre of terrestrial forest, the net carbon sequestration of a acre of uh, coastal Louisiana marshes is 80x one, terrestri- one acre of terrestrial forest. So 80x the carbon sequestration potential. Now, of course, that's net, right? So you have to factor in, you know, land loss and hurricanes, and you have to factor in the dynamism of coastal ecosystems. And that's what we are trying to work through with a, with a whole host of partners. But to me, if that doesn't, um, uh, doesn't show opportunity, that not only is there an entire economy, companies upon companies um, built around a voluntary carbon market across the world, mostly built off terrestrial forests. And you can look in coastal ecosystems like Louisiana or around uh, the Gulf Coast or around the Gulf of Mexico, and you look at these coastal ecosystems, and they are sequestering 80x the carbon of a terrestrial forest. I mean, you know, police call that a clue, right? There's there's something we should be looking into. Um, And so to me, that's one of the, the stats 
not necessarily on the risk. I mean, um, you know, there are tremendous risks that our communities are facing. There's the climate crisis is today, it's yesterday, and it's tomorrow. Um, and uh, but again, um, the 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 mantra for New Orleans, the mantra for uh, the Gulf Coast is to find the opportunity through that risk, right? And we had the opportunity, um, you know, just not too long ago to go sit down. Um, with with a whole host of, of folks, or actually we stood up in the event, but it was the Urban Water at 10 um, event that the Greater New Orleans uh, Foundation, Greater New Orleans Incorporated, um, and Tulane um, uh, Bywater Institute are pulling together to recognize how far we've come in the last 10 years around urban water, which is a long way. We've done some fantastic thought. We've done some fantastic modeling. There's incredible, you know, small NGOs and small companies like, you know, Batcher Engineering or the Front Yard Initiative of the Urban Conservancy that have been stood up around um, this paradigm shift with all thanks to, to David Wagner and, and Mac Ball from their team, um, you know, back 10 years ago. But it was a really interesting um, uh, uh, event. And there's going to be a series of events uh, through the fall to say, OK, look, how far have we come? And it's a long way. But boy, do we have a long way to go. And to see this risk um, that faces us here in New Orleans with urban stormwater um, and, and, and urban resilience and the, the balance between green and gray, gray infrastructure, particularly aging uh, gray infrastructure, um, it, it is something that we can look at as a, you know, oh, let's run for the hills, right? But I was just in the hills a couple of weeks ago, and there's a heat wave in the hills, too, right? So um, we don't have many places to run. So we've got to settle in. Um, we've got to face the music um, and, and find opportunity. What are some key technologies or project types that you are watching come online that could be important or surprising new tools for coastal community resilience? Yeah, you know, the, the technology side of things is, is something that the Water Institute of today is, is really leaning into. You know, historically, um, we would, uh, you know, be asked to do science. We would do, you know, in my opinion, fantastic science and deliver it to a client and, um, you know, produce a report and publish that paper in the scientific literature. And then move on to the next one, right? And one of the things that we're really thinking a lot about is, you know, the Water Institute of Gulf, as I said, is a, a nonprofit. We got 85 people. We're in 17 states, just based upon where people live. The, primarily, our work is in the Gulf Coast. The challenge is much bigger than we will ever be able to solve, right? And so, if our metric, and it is, is impact, is having an impact on the communities that we serve, then it can't just be a one-and-done project. It can't just be a one-and-done idea. We have to think about how to scale impact, how to scale solutions, not only um, for you know those communities that can pay for it and 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 you know to find a, the the newest uh, hottest technology, but when we can think about how to boil um, you know uh, innovative coastal and 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 uh, research and, and and coastal thought into its component parts, we can then transmit that uh, that information to communities who maybe couldn't afford the work, right? And that's one of the big things that we're thinking about now. And so technology is a way to do that. Also, you know, really boiling down your methodologies and creating, you know, trainings and processes that can be uh, disseminated into into other communities is a way to really scale impact. You know, some of the technologies that I'm most excited about, we've been working on the river with the Port of New Orleans, the Port of South Louisiana, and the Louisiana Economic Development Administration, right? So, uh, uh, you know, the economic uh, LED and the Federal Economic Development Administration, where we got an economic development grant to go and try and help um, ports along the river become more resilient, part one, but also 
help them better understand what the bottom of the river looks like, right? So we've been uh, doing this project called SmartPort. And what this is, is basically a crowdsourced application that we have uploaded onto 75 some odd uh, tugboats and service boats up and down the Mississippi River from, you know, really Myrtle Grove up to Baton Rouge right now. It, it, it can and will scale. Um, but this um, application taps into the uh, depth sounder of the boat and it uh, taps into the GPS and sends it up to the cloud. And every time that that boat crosses the gold standard, which is an Army Corps of Engineers survey at the crossing, every time that that boat uh, crosses that gold standard survey, it calibrates the data. And so we're able to take, you know, a, a boat that, you know, we don't know how much gas is in it. It's not calibrated. It's not connected to a datum on, on, on the bank. It is just telling you how much water is between you and what this sonar thinks is the bottom. But we're able to calibrate that to the Army Corps of Engineers Gold Standard Surveys, and we have basically created an, a deputized army of survey boats on the Mississippi River through, you know, companies like Turn Services and Crescent and and, and some fantastic, um, you know, visionary companies along the Mississippi River to allow us to, to uh, put this technology on there. What we're able to do with that is create a near real-time bathymetric map of the bottom of the river which is better than what we have right now. Right now, um, we have fantastic pilots that um, work up and down the Mississippi River. They are amazing at their job, and they know how to get ships in and out, right? But if you're a port manager or if you're managing a, a boat slip, basically, you just know when, when there's a shoal that comes in. You know when the sandbars come in. We know it's going to come after a high-water event. We know it's going to lay down sediment. We don't know where. We don't know when. We don't know why. But what this technology has allowed us to do is say, not only create that real-time map, but then we take that real-time data and we plug it into um, artificial intelligence and machine learning predictive models. And we're able to anticipate 7, 14, 20 days into the future, what is the bottom of the gonna, river going to look like in this space? So this is, um, you know, it, it, the, the goal of this, it is explicitly an Economic Development Administration grant, right? The idea is how can we make the ports along the Mississippi River and the companies that operate along the Mississippi River more economically competitive? It's scientifically interesting to us, right? We love the idea of understanding how the water and the sediment flows um, across the, the bottom of the river. But this is one of the many technologies um, that, that we're working with right now that I think is just is fascinating and also completely scalable, right? You think about we're not the only river in the world. We're not the only place where, you know, sedimentation and shoaling happens. Um, and, uh, you know, what we can learn uh, from really some visionary leadership from the Port of New Orleans and the Port of South Louisiana to, to see this initial uh, work. Um, and then the uh, LED in Louisiana believing in this project and funding it. This is something that um, can go all the way up the Mississippi River and help uh, ports and operators along the Mississippi River um, create a more efficient um, a safer um, uh, water economy um, along the Mississippi River. We know that transporting, you know, goods and grains on the Mississippi River is one of the most safest and efficient and environmentally friendly ways to get grains to market. Um, well, if this can help, then then that's to me that's 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 technology that we should be believing in and investing in. Is there anything that I missed that you'd like to discuss? You know, I think it. You know, Greg, I'll I'll uh, chime on this just for the listeners. You know, uh, this is something. Um, you know, my role here at the Water Institute, obviously, I'm stepping into the acting president and CEO of the Water Institute of the Gulf. The reason I'm doing that is because one of my dear friends and our, uh, you know, visionary leader, Justin Aaronworth, recently uh, uh, passed away. Um, and 
you know, uh, Justin, again, was a, a, a fantastic friend and an uh, amazing leader of the Water Institute, amazing leader of the Restore Council, um, a beloved uh, person in this community. Um, and and I, I mentioned that, one, just to, to honor him um, and, and to, um, you know, uh, make clear that, uh, that this, is a shared, this is a shared journey, right? Um, when you have either, I don't know if it's the, the honor, the stupidity, um, or, or the opportunity to work on problems that you will never see solved. Um, there, there's some shared camaraderie there, right? I, I, I'm not trying to, um, you know, build a spreadsheet that I know is going to work, right? What, what we and, and our team and all of our partners in the, in the private sector, in the public sector, in the university sector, um, and, and in the startup community, what we are all doing is trying to look on at, at the horizon and try and solve problems that are coming down the pipe that are are existential, right? And and we know that we're not going to fix them, but we know that we have the opportunity to move the ball just a little bit. And so, um, you know, Justin uh, was was you know somebody who stood on the shoulders of giants that came be him, before him, like you know Woody Gagliano and Lynn Barr. Um, and, and, uh, you know, Scott Hagen, um, and, and then, then, you know, now we have this opportunity and this challenge to jump on Justin's shoulders, um, and, and the many other shoulders that are out there of giants to try and carry this work, uh, before we pass it off to the next generation. So what is next for you, Bo? What are you most excited about in your personal or professional journey? Oh, I mean, you know, uh, next, uh, for me is, is to try and, you know, juggle two kids and, and, <laughs> um, life in new Orleans, make it through the summer, uh, see if we can get back to, to some good weather, but, you know, in the water Institute, we, we have this, this challenge and this opportunity, um, in front of us, like, uh, so many folks to, to really hone in on who we are, um, what we want to focus on. We have some amazing, uh, clients and partners and opportunities to look at carbon, to look at nature-based solutions, to look at urban resilience. Um, and so we're just going to keep the, the foot on the, on, um, the accelerator. I won't say that keep the foot on the gas, um, but we're going to keep the, uh, the foot on the accelerator, um, and, and try and move forward. I mean, there are, uh, a lot of risk on our horizon. There are a lot of challenges for this community and for all of the communities um, along the Gulf Coast, some of them that may not be as charismatic as New Orleans risk. Um, but what we know is that if we plot forward, we put science, engineering, um, innovative thought at the forefront of decisions that we will make better decisions. We will create more resilient um, and, and, uh, and equitable communities. We will create thriving economies. Um, and we will do that by leveraging healthy ecosystems. So we're going to keep the, uh, the foot down. We're going to keep moving. Um, for me, um, it, it's about finding balance between, between all that. Raise good kids. Um, uh, uh, grab the, the flag of the mission, um, but recognize that it's a long, long, long race. Well, Bo, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us on the Blue Economy Primer. I feel like we basically just got a master's course in strategies for resilient coastal communities. It's clear that this is a dynamic period in the important work of the Water Institute. We'll look forward to staying in touch and following your evolving role in ensuring that Louisiana is not only properly prepared, but also leading the way in the implementation of coastal resilient solution sets worldwide. Thanks so much, Greg, and, and, and thanks to you and all your listeners for everything that y'all are doing. Thank you for joining us on the Blue Economy Primer. If you enjoyed today's podcast, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Please help us spread the word, and be sure to visit our website at www.deepblue.academy, where you can find all of our available episodes, access important links and supporting information for each episode, send us your comments and or suggestions for potential guests and topics, 
get more information about our community engagement initiatives, and join our mailing list, as well as make a much appreciated tax-deductible donation to support our nonprofit education and research mission. Thanks again to the Dan Lucas Memorial Foundation and the Pontchartrain Conservancy for their critical financial and institutional support. Until next time, when we meet again on the ever-expanding horizon of the blue economy. Thank you.